this epiphany and Lent at Kenilworth Union Church. I've been preaching this series of sermons called Letters from Prison, in which I've been looking at some of the great literature that comes to us from a prison cell. Not only Paul's letter to the Philippians, but Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Adolf Hitler, Solzhenitsyn, and others. Um, and sort of been going verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. I'm in the middle of chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make the goal my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I don't consider that I've made it on my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind, and if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, writes St. Paul to his friends at Philippi, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about breaking the tape at the finish line so that he can go home with the gold. Would it surprise you to learn that there are eight sports metaphors in the New Testament? Seven of them, including what I just read, come from the Apostle Paul or from some ghost writer composing letters under Paul's more celebrated name. And the frequent use of sports metaphors by Jesus and Paul is not really surprising when you remember that Jesus and Paul and their contemporaries lived in a culture that was as sports-crazed as our own. Over in Greece, the Olympic Games had been happening every four years for 700 years by the time Jesus and Paul came along and would go on for another 400 years until the excessively pious Roman Emperor Theodosian terminated the Olympics because he didn't think the games were Christian enough. I strain forward for the tape at the finish line so that I can go home with the gold. The other day I went to see this new film called Race about Jesse Owens, four gold medals, medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics under the withering glare of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels. It's a very nice film and you should see it, but I feel compelled to warn my fellow Wolverines that its two brave and talented heroes are Buckeyes. Larry Snyder was Jesse Owens' coach at Ohio State. Larry's athletes broke 14 world records, took home eight Olympic gold medals. 52 of them were All-Americans. And I wanted to see this film partly because it has one of the greatest movie titles in recent memory, right? Race is about race in more ways than one. Jesse Owens' best event, of course, was the 100-yard dash or the 100 meters for those 10 seconds on the track, says Jesse, for those 10 seconds on the track, there is no black and white. There is only fast and slow. Yes? 
So I wanted to see race because I wanted to see what this movie would do with that great movie title, but also because I wanted to live in to St. Paul's track and field metaphor here in his letter to the Philippians. It was great fun to watch Jesse Owens' perfect track and field form, the way he lunged his chest forward on the last step of the race to break the tape at the finish line and go home with the gold. St. Paul tells the Philippians that his own life is just like that. I haven't much track left in me, says St. Paul. Time is short. I forget what lies behind and strain forward for what lies ahead to break that tape. Philippians almost sounds like a valedictory address, doesn't it? Someone, these are maybe someone's last words or at least late words. The last words of a man who knows his time might be short. You know, Paul tells us in the beginning of this letter that he's writing it from a prison cell. But to be honest, St. Paul was in prison in so many places so many times and in so much trouble in so many places that we don't really know where he wrote this letter from. But my guess is that it comes to us from a Roman prison cell around 62 or 63 A.D. We're pretty sure that Paul was martyred under Nero's sword before the year 64 A.D. And we think that Paul was probably an exact contemporary of Jesus of Nazareth, which means that he was born around 4 B.C., which means then that Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Philippians, might be 65, 66 years old. It was, a, it was an old age in the first century. Life expectancy in the first century was about 35 years. We've more than doubled that today, but it wasn't always true. 35 years was your expectancy. And so Paul knows he doesn't have much track left in his own personal 100-yard dash He's awaiting trial in a Roman court of law and he doesn't know if he will get out alive. As it turns out, he will not. And so Paul is at that stage of life that William Shakespeare describes as that time of year thou'st in me behold when yellow leaves or few or none do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare, ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west. Now, as it turns out, Shakespeare died at the age of 52. He never was an old, old man. But maybe when he was writing this sonnet, he was feeling old. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves are few or none do hang upon the naked branches of that forest. The birds have all gone south for the winter, so those branches are bare, ruined choirs. Here's a pointless aside, but at least it's free. No extra charge for this. A high school teacher was teaching poetry to his senior English class, and they'd spent days and days getting acquainted with the finest poems in the language, including many of the 154 sonnets of William Shakespeare. And so the high school teacher decides one day that he's going to give his class a pop quiz. And he says to his class, I'm going to recite a few lines of a poem. And as soon as you know which poem this is, you raise your hand and you'll get an A for the day if you're right. And so the teacher begins reciting William Shakespeare's sonnet number 73, that time of year when thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or few or none do hang upon those boughs which shake against. And then Brian's hand shoots up. Brian is the sassiest and smartest kid in the class. And the teacher says, yes, Brian. And Brian says, that's a sonnet by Shakespeare. 
And the teacher says, yes, Brian, that's right, but which one? And Brian thinks about that for a minute, and he finally says, William. (laughs) That kid not only got an A for the day, but he's going to go far. Anyway, when Paul writes this letter, he's in that time of life when yellow leaves or few or none do hang upon those naked branches. Philippians might be his last will and this might be for, as far as posterity is concerned, the last will and testament of St. Paul. And and as the last letter Paul wrote, this, this, this letter is unique in the Pauline corpus, isn't it? You've read Paul's huge, great works, right? Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. These are dark, huge, complicated works. They're really more books than letters. They're works of genius, but they're also very difficult and critical, right? Oh, you foolish Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Why are you acting like heathens? Oh, you foolish Galatians, he writes to the churches in Galatia. Who has bewitched you? I am stunned that you've already forgot the gospel that I brought you. But now in this letter, it's as if Paul's saying, time is too short for disputation. Time is too short for admonition. And I think we're witnessing here in this little, this precious little letter to his friends, we're witnessing the mellowing of a cantankerous old rapscallion. He wrote these masterpieces when he was in his 30s and 40s, but now he's coming near the end of his life, and there's no time for criticism. There's no time for the dark. Rejoice is what he says over and over again. Do you know what they call this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi? It's often called Paul's Ode to Joy. Rejoice, he says over and over again. He says it 16 times in this short letter. It's only got 104 verses. It's 1,600 words, or about two-thirds the length of this sermon. Paul says rejoice 16 times, 16 ways, till they're tired of hearing it. Rejoice that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Rejoice that despite present appearances, God is in charge always and everywhere. Rejoice that beyond life, more life. This might be Paul's ninth and final symphony, like Beethoven, Ode to Joy. And so do you think that the world can use a valedictory address like this from someone like St. Paul? What, What will your valediction be? Does it seem as if discourse in our democracy keeps getting coarser and ruder and unkinder? Last Friday, the boys' basketball team from Bishop Knoll High School in Hammond, Indiana, played a road game at Andrian High in Merrillville, Indiana. Bishop Knoll from Hammond is heavily Hispanic. Andrian from Merrillville is much whiter. And during the game, the Andrian student section held up cutouts of Donald Trump's face and chanted, build the wall. These are both Catholic high schools. For those 10 seconds on the track, says Jesse Owens, there's no black and white. There's only fast and slow. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward for what lies ahead, I press forward to break the tape and go home with the gold. 
Big anniversary coming up, April 23, 2016. 400th anniversary of William Shakespeare's death. Died on his birthday, April 23. And so you're seeing all this activity around Shakespeare, right? The Chicago Shakespeare Theater, the Lyric Opera is doing Romeo and Juliet right now. And I've been thinking a lot about Shakespeare and what Paul and Shakespeare have in common. You know, the, the Bard, like Paul, the Bard's greatest and most acclaimed work he did at the zenith of his strength as a young man in his 30s and 40s. Lear, Macbeth, Othello, and Hamlet, the greatest plays ever written. These plays where every tragic flaw is unforgiven and every error amplified until the stage drips with blood. Lear, Gloucester, Cordelia, Hamlet, and Ophelia, Othello, and Desdemona, Macbeth, and his... I'm not playing the spoiler, right? You knew that Hamlet and Macbeth died in the end. A while back, I went to Northwestern to see a film of the Benedict Cumberbatch performance of Hamlet that he did in London last fall. I was shocked at the body count. There are piles of bodies on the stage at Hamlet. But then one, once he's written those masterpieces, at the end of his life, he, just, he changes his mind, and he writes Cymbeline and The Winter's Tale and The Tempest. These are fairy tales. Sweet, sweet fairy tales. Frederick Buechner says, Cymbeline, where innocence is vindicated and old enemies reconciled. The Winter's Tale, where the dead queen turns out not to be dead and Perdita is restored to those who love her. And The Tempest, where the great storm that lashed old Lear to madness is stilled by Prospero's magic and justice is done and lovers reunited and the kingdom restored to its rightful king. Do you remember what we felt when we saw the tempest in Chicago last fall? When we watched Prospero morph from this vengeful despot into this benevolent deity so that his islanders might flourish and love rather than suffer and hate? Be not afeard, says Caliban. Be not afeard. The isle is filled with noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. The clouds, methought, would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that when I wake, I cried to dream again. That's Shakespeare's valediction and Paul too. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Shipwreck, humiliate, Humiliation, anathema, and imprisonment. I rejoice despite all this. I rejoice because of all this. That's Paul's last word. One, one last thing, and then I'll quit. Have you ever read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress? Probably not in our day and age. I... Never read it till I got ready for this sermon. Language is so quaint, and it's an allegory, right? The characters are called Christian and pliable and obstinate and faithful and piety. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, this book would have been in every English-speaking home, right next to the King James Bible, whose language it shares. Many English-speaking people in the 18th and 19th centuries would have learned to read with the Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a letter from prison. John Bunyan wrote it while he was in a Bedfordshire prison for 12 years. You know why he was in prison? It's because he was a Baptist, and that was illegal. 
He refused to put on the gaudy vestments of the Anglican priest, and he refused to, res to install a communion rail at his communion table. In his mind, the Church of England in the 17th century was pompous, shallow, and self-satisfied. And so there he sat for 12 years. And from his Bedfordshire prison, he wrote nine books and also carved a, a working flute from the wooden leg of a stool in his prison cell. His jailers loved him so much that they would let him escape so that he could preach sermons at his church and visit his friends. And after one such furlough, he came back late at night when the jail was all locked down, so he woke up his jailer so that he could be let back in. And they kept him for 12 years. And then this is what he writes at the end of a long journey of the pilgrim's progress into Jesus. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I'm going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spat upon for me. I have loved to hear my Lord spoken of and wherever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, there I have coveted to set my foot to. His voice to me has been most sweet. His word I did use to gather for my food and for antidotes against my failings. He has held me, and I have kept me from mine iniquities. Yea, my steps hath he strengthened in his way. That's a pretty good valediction. What will yours be? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.